Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, the song, the hymn that we just sang, Praise to the Lord the Almighty, is um, for me uh, the only song that I have from my childhood in the church. Uh, this was a song sung in Catholic circles, uh, having been raised in a Roman Catholic home, but the, the hymn was slightly different there, uh, where it said, um, uh, Come to his temple. Uh, the Catholic version was come to his altar. And that would make sense given the, the uh, nature of the church and the altar in that place. So, Well, it's good to be back this morning. I hope that you got a good night's sleep and are ready to talk about a subject that may make you squirm in your seat just a little bit. Because we're going to talk about money. And that can be uh, both a good thing and... Uh, a bad thing at the same time. And we're in the midst of talking about those things that affect the local church itself. When you talk about the nature of the church, you talk about church in the larger sense, the church in the larger sense of the global church, of, the, of, uh, of what the church is in the world, all of the elect of every tribe, tongue, and nation that God has called out of the world through his son, Jesus Christ. That's certainly the larger church, but then there's the, the, the local church itself, the little incarnations of this thing called the church that we have uh, even here in this place and the, the various churches that the others of us uh, are familiar with from far off. So my task has been over the last couple of sermons to discuss those things that are specific to this local body. We talked about what who the, who the leadership of the local church should be in terms of elders. We've talked about what should be contained in the worship of the church, one of the most, if not the most important thing that the local church does in terms of what should be contained in worship. And now let's talk about the reality in the local church of money. It is, of course, a, diff- a difficult subject. How should we, how should the church raise its money? implies, of course, within the very question itself, that money will be a part of the reality of the church. So it seems appropriate, seemed appropriate for the designers of this conference to have such a discussion. It's a difficult thing because, you know, in some branches of Christianity, money seems to be the only thing they talk about. In some branches of Christianity, it seems it's the primary concern of the church. It's the focus of the preaching and the teaching and the wealth of the congregation in relation to faith is all-consuming. Many churches, the only thing you ever hear about is, is money. And then there's, then there's other churches that Carrie and I are familiar with in which money is rarely discussed. It's almost as though it's verboten to actually talk about money in any sort of way uh, because it seems off-limits to them. Uh, except for the occasional sermon on the importance of giving, discussions of money, especially especially in terms of pastoral compensation, are off-limits to the average person. So you have these extremes in some sense in the church. You have churches that are all completely focused on money. They have churches that almost put it away as though it's not even there. But money was a significant subject in the teachings of Jesus in the gospel accounts. We don't have time this morning to go through all the various things that Jesus said about money because he said a lot about money. But there's there's a number of different things to consider. We know that Jesus taught directly about money itself. Matthew chapter 6, 
Verse 24, he says, you cannot serve both God and mammon, money. You cannot serve God and money. So he was clearly speaking about the reality of money itself. He often used money in parables as examples. In uh, Matthew 25, verse 18, he's, he told the parable of the, of the servant who went and hid his master's money rather than using it uh, to advance his master's, uh, his master's dealings. Jesus saw money sometimes even as symbolic in life. He stood outside the temple one day and watched as the people put their money into the offering box and made comment to his disciples about that. So Jesus saw money as a significant reality of the human existence. And, and when you get later in the New Testament, you see Paul writing whole chapters on the use of money. We're going we're gonna, to uh, reflect on one in a few minutes. In other words, the New Testament has a lot to say about money. It has a lot to say about this, this, this particular thing and the connection of wealth, the connection of money to our spiritual lives, how we as believers are to manage it in life, particularly in our relationship to God, as we consider who he is. We live in a material world. We are subject to the forces of of a natural world in which we live. We are not spiritual beings that are able to just navigate uh, our existence without the material world. We are material creatures. And so we are subject to the economic realities all around us. Therefore, by definition, so will the church. The church will have to deal and navigate with the realities of this material world. Now, I realize that there have been some who have attempted to stay pure in that sense, say, oh, we don't have anything to do with the material world. But that's preposterous on its face. Everything, there's, there's economic realities in every aspect of our lives. The food we eat and the chairs you're sitting in and the clothes you're wearing are all part of the, uh, your connection to a material world. We are material beings created by God from the dust of the ground. And so we must deal with these realities. And so the church has to deal with these realities as well. Somebody had to purchase this tent and put it up. It doesn't just fall out of the sky one day and land here and they just happen to pick. No, it had to be purchased. Somebody had to probably had to pay to pour this concrete foundation here and so forth. There's realities involved. So money is a part. It's going to be a part of the reality of this world. Reality of the church, I should say. You're going to need money to support a church, its building or meeting place. You're going to have to compensate those who labor to preach. You're going to have to, you're going to need money to expand the ministries of the church amongst its own people and then even beyond the church in missions. And you're going to need money to help others who are poor and in need and those sorts of things. Money's going to be a reality in the life of the church. Okay, so, so we have to deal with this subject rightly because the New Testament doesn't shy away from it. Jesus didn't shy away from it. And therefore, the church should not either. But we must be wise in terms of our understanding of this. And so the topic this morning is how do we raise the monies that we need to accomplish all of the things that the Lord has set us to do as the church? How do we do that? What is the, what is the biblical and right way 
to bring the resources to the church that are needed for the church to do its work. And this morning I want to suggest that the means of support in the local church is along the lines of three specific things. There are three ways that the church brings in uh, the resources it needs to do the work that it is set to do. And the first of these is what is known as the tithe. The tithe. A tithe is a, a predetermined portion of what you possess set aside as a contribution to a religious organization. The word has the connotation of 10%, a 10% offering to the church that's established as a regular form of contribution. The Hebrew word for tithe first appears in Genesis chapter 14, very early in the history of the world, in fact. In, a, in Genesis chapter 14, Abraham goes to Melchizedek, the priest of Salem, and offers to him 10% of what he has taken possession of. He gives it to him as an act of worship, as an act of gratitude to God for what God has given him the ability to accomplish. He gave it as a gift of gratitude. That's where it first appears, very early in the history of the world. In the law, again, several hundred years later, roughly 600 years later, it's first mentioned in Leviticus 27, verse 30. And God establishes in the law that a tenth of every crop that was taken in was the Lord's. It was holy to the Lord, it says. God established a legitimate claim as the one who had given the increase, and so therefore the Israelites were obligated under the law to give back to the Lord 10% of that which had been gleaned. So we see in the law and even in the history of the world that the tithe is a very real part of what God has established. He allocated it. And the tithe was allocated by the Lord to be used for the support of those who provided spiritual help to the people. The Levites, Numbers chapter 18 and verse 21, says that the Levites to receive this, this tithe. And the reason why is because you remember that when God established the land allocations for the Israelites, when he set each of the tribes in their various locations, he did not establish a specific place for the Levites. Rather, he scattered them amongst all the other tribes. They were to establish their own places, their own cities, and then, and then they were to use the farmland around those cities as their own. But they were to be the spiritual helpers of those tribes. They were to be the priests into those tribes. And God did that because he, he considered it, and rightly so, to be a great honor for them to have that. The tithe then was to be given by the people to the Levites, and that would be their support. That would be what uh, they would, where they would receive their monies because they were not given land to farm and grow their own crops. They would have to be supported by the people. So in Israel, the tithe was considered to be a compulsory offering of the people, a part of their worship of God, and the support of their spiritual leaders. Now, there is some debate, of course, amongst Christians, amongst various Christians, as to whether the tithe is still a legitimate form of monetary offering in the church. Does the tithe remain today as a compulsory form of offering 
for Christians. Now, there are some who suggest that the tithe, being a part of the ceremonial code in the Old Testament, being part of the ceremonial code of the Mosaic Law, was superseded in the New Covenant by a more generalized free will offering of those who had been supernaturally born again. Because they now possessed a new heart that had been given to them by God, which had been filled with his generosity and his grace, the assumption being that the Old Testament tithe has been replaced by a new form of giving which flows out of just the, the grace, the graciousness of response to God. Such folks suggest that Jesus' condemnation of the scribes and Pharisees when they would tithe their spices, these very trivial matters, and yet neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, Matthew 23, 23, suggests that their compulsion did not, out of their compulsion, they did not understand grace, and it points to the larger principle that in the new, in the new covenant, we are to give out of this great sense of generosity because of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, rather than just according to uh, compulsion. They also suggest that Paul's teaching in regards to the famine gift that he was giving and bringing to the saints back in Jerusalem. Remember, he was they were struggling under a famine, and while he was in Corinth and heading on his way back, he took up a collection there to bring with him back to Jerusalem to help them. That this is a picture of this New Testament idea of an outflow of even greater giving because of the fact that we are in Christ. In other words, those who argue that the tithe has been superseded in the New Covenant by a different kind of giving is the belief that the New Testament actually teaches a significant, significantly higher form of generosity, not built on compulsion, but built on natural generosity. Now, there's much to be said about all of that. I would agree that, yes, those of us who live in the New Covenant and have experienced the the awesome generosity of God in Christ Jesus should certainly generate out of us a tremendous sense of generosity uh, towards the church itself, towards others first and and towards the church itself. Uh, But that does not necessarily have to imply that the tithe itself has been superseded. There's substantial reason to believe that the tithe is still a very legitimate requirement by God. And I would argue that one of the greatest evidences of that is the fact that the tithe actually precedes the Mosaic Law. Remember, a few moments ago I told you that that, the concept of the tithe appears all the way back in Genesis 14. That's at least 600 years before Moses ever walked the earth. Abraham was giving a tithe to Melchizedek, gave him 10% out of gratitude to him, to the out of gratitude to the Lord for him. And so the law of Moses is not the genesis of the tithe. Tithe. It's not the beginning of it. We don't see the tithe starting in the law as though God suddenly said to the Israelites, okay, now you're required to give me 10%. There's a sense in which that preceded it. In fact, you could make a very good argument reading Genesis chapter 4 very carefully that Abel and Cain both understood this idea of giving a gift to the Lord that the Lord himself had commanded to be given. Now again, I think that word compulsion is where our problem comes in. We have a tendency to think that compulsion means something we're forced to do, we just grit our teeth and do it. But that's not really the definition of a tithe. A tithe is 
what God himself has established as an order in creation, in order that the people of God might worship him in a way in which he prescribes. I would go back to what I said yesterday. If worship, if, if our God is a God of order and has established all things according to a plan, it seems reasonable that he would also say to us, look, in this issue of money, I have ordained an order. And that order is, here's what I want you to do. And we should want to do so. So while certain aspects of the ceremonial code are done away with or fulfilled in Christ, many other aspects of the worship in the ceremonial code still carry on. True, we don't sacrifice animals here in the church, but we do recognize the sacrifice that was made for us in Christ. And so while we would say that, sure, we don't kill a lamb in here, the lamb has been slain. We talk about the lamb being slain. So we don't do away with all of what we saw in the ceremonial code, but rather what we do is we recognize it's continuing reality to us today. The Sabbath continues. But again, the Sabbath, like the tithe, I would say, precedes the law. Sabbath goes all the way back to the very beginnings of time when God formed the heavens and the earth and then rested on the seventh day, establishing the Sabbath. In fact, the moral code itself in the Decalogue actually appeals to the rest of God as a Sabbath. It's built and predicated on the idea that it preexisted it. So I am convinced that the tithe, while certainly having a new sense of a relationship of our money to God, comes out of the new covenant. The idea of worshiping God in the form and order that he has commanded has not been done away with. I would say that the tide has actually been strengthened in terms of our reality as believers. He has given us an order, an orderly way to worship him, and as New Testament believers, we should desire to do so in an even greater way than just a simple compulsion, which may have been what the Israelites experienced. It has a different focus, in other words. has a different focus. Still assuming... Believers will participate regularly in the support of the church. But we will do so with an entirely different perspective of what monetary giving is all about. Rather than being some sort of ritualistic obligation and obedience to a command, the tithe for us is a recognition that by God's grace in Christ, everything belongs to him. And we are simply returning to him what is rightfully his within the framework of worship in general as those he has sought out to worship him. The tithe, therefore, should be the primary means by which the church receives its resources. The people of the church bringing their tithes into the storehouse for the advancement of the cause of Christ in the church. So the first way is the tithe. The second way then, which builds upon it, is the free will offering. It's simply the extension of the tithe. I would say that the free will offering is best designed as the that sense of generosity flowing out of the heart of the regenerate man in which he gives out of his own abundance over and above that which he sets aside as his tithe. 
He says, okay, this is what the Lord has commanded me to give. I give this. But now I wish to give an even greater sense out of the abundance that the Lord has given to me. Money's given above the expected as an act of grace and mercy towards others. The overflow of thanksgiving that translate into money's given just because we're led to do so. You ever had one of those moments when you just want to help somebody? Just You just say, I, I need to do this. I need to give this. That's the idea. Coming to the church out of the abundance of what God has given and saying, I wish to give because the cause of Christ in the world is so important. I want to, the Lord has blessed me and I want to be able to bless someone else. That's what we're talking about. So in many ways, the tithe on the one hand and the free will offering on the other are intimately linked together in the sense that they are both built on the same predicate in the New Testament, and that is this deep sense of recognition that our God has saved us even though he shouldn't have. Out of the great generosity of his grace and his mercy that he has, that he has, he has come and he has done what he ought not to have done. He ought not to have saved us. If he was a just God, he would give us what we rightly deserve, which is he would cast us away from his presence. But in Christ, he has brought us to himself. He has given us of mercy and compassion beyond our comprehension. It'll take an eternity for us to understand the generosity of our God. And so as we approach the church, we come into the church, the Christian comes with that great sense of awe and he opens up his pocketbook and he gives to the Lord in response to that. Paul, you remember, had purpose to go back to Jerusalem to help the Christians there who are struggling under famine. And he urged his fellow believers to join him in this generosity. So it is clear, biblically, that such generosity is also a part of how the church is to be funded. So I would contend that the vast majority of what the church needs for its operation should come from the tithes and offerings of the people who make up the church. Okay, I would argue that the vast majority, if not all, of what is required for the church to operate should come from the tithes and offerings of the people. The, the accumulation of the generosity and the love of the people of the church for the church to continue. But I will suggest a third, and this, this is uh, actually in the chapter that uh, Conrad Bebewe writes on the church uh, in his book that he writes on the church, he suggests a third means by which the church should, um, uh, the means that the church should use uh, to raise uh, its monies. And he carves it out as a, a third way, I think, and rightly so, but it's intuitive, okay? In other words, it's not, it's not something that just, it's not something that's commanded in Scripture. It's the sort of thing that's sort of like a, you look at it and you go, well, well, that's obvious, okay? And what I mean by that is what he calls the charging of services. 
Okay. You know, at times, in some cases, the, ch- the church is going to be supported through specific types of fundraising as related to the providing of services, either to members of the church or to those who benefit from its members. Okay, so let's say, for example, that the church hosts a function in the church that requires uh, monies to operate, something you're doing, and it requires money to make it happen, and so you charge those who come, and they pay to come in order to receive the benefit of that. Now, see, that's, that's really sort of intuitive rather than being explicit. In other words, it's not some, something commanded in Scripture where the Scripture says, okay, you must charge for all your services. No, it's, it's sort of the reality of just the economics of living in this world. If you're going to host a conference and outsiders are going to come, then you, then you say to them, could you pay a small amount to cover the costs of that? So you're supporting the church, quote-unquote, through that. But you'll notice it's a little different than the tithe and offering. That, that this is connected to something specific in the life of the church, Whereas the tithe and offering is the people coming and saying, we're just supporting in a general sense the life of the church. Now I realize that there are, in some circles, this third element of the charging of services, in fact, becomes, unfortunately, one of the primary ways by which they, they drive their ministries. Uh, when I was living in the central part of the United States in a state called Kansas and ministering there, Many of the churches in town would hold regular fundraising events, soup suppers and other kinds of events, and they would invite the community to come and, and purchase something there, and they would raise their monies through that. And they would get, in fact, for many of these churches, they would get a very large, very significant portion of what they needed to pay their pastor and operate their building and so forth from that function. So what I'm, what I'm pointing out here is, yes, the charging for services and offering things like those things is certainly a way by which the church can raise its funds, but it seems to me from the New Testament that the primary support of the church isn't coming from serving the community, but rather from the people of the church bringing their monies to the church to support the church. With these kinds of service services being ancillary to the main means by which monies come into the church. I don't see in the New Testament any hint whatsoever that Paul was telling the churches, you know, here's how you raise your support, right? Go down the street in Corinth and offer some function and that will be how money comes in. And here's one of the reasons why I'm leery of this. In many of those churches that I talked about a moment ago, they would, as I said, be receiving money from the community. But they were churches that were not preaching the true gospel of Christ. Many, many of these churches were false gospels. The Catholic Church often did fundraising things. By the way, Roman Catholic churches are notorious 
for using this kind of means to raise their support. Bingos and festivals and all kinds of other things that they do in order to raise money. But they're preaching a false gospel. The message of the church was not anywhere consistent with the message of Christ that we see in in the New Testament. And so I would say to my people, I would say, now let me ask you a question. Why would you go to such a place and give them money, buy their products and services in order for them to receive your monies, in order for them to take your monies and advance in the world a false gospel? That doesn't make any sense. That's inconsistent. And I would say the reverse is also true. Why would we expect the reprobate man who hates the gospel of Jesus Christ to come and give us money to advance the cause of Christ? Which is why I'm convinced from the New Testament that we should be raising the funds and resources that we need to advance the cause of Christ through the people who know this gospel and this Christ and only. So yes, there will be time for there will be times for us to to charge for services and for those to benefit for them. But I would believe that this third means is tiny compared to the monies that would come in through the regular members. In other words, I said the members of the church should be the ones giving the bulk, the vast majority of what the church needs to survive, to do its work. Not survive, sorry, that's the wrong word to advance the cause of Christ in the world. So the church should raise its money through the tithes of its people and through their offerings, and then as it is appropriate to charge for services to cover other costs that might be incurred in the church. But I'd like to just add one thing to this topic. I think it's worth discussing. Conrad doesn't include it in his book, but I will add it here. And that is, if we are to raise funds in the church, then what are we to spend those monies on? Okay? What are we to spend those monies on? And let me suggest to you that the New Testament does give some clear exposition here of one thing that we ought to do in the church with these monies. Now, this this is where a guy standing behind a pulpit moves into the category of what would commonly refer to as the utterly self-serving preaching. Okay, because I'm about to talk about something that involves me as a minister of the gospel, right? Okay, so here's one of those cases where I actually have to preach a part of the Bible that involves me as a minister. Okay? And so it's a little... It's a little touchy, if you will, because it's like, okay, I'm going to talk about something that's entirely self-serving. But the Lord has put it in his word, and the preacher is to preach the whole counsel of God, and so, so here we go. One of the particular things that the church should be doing as a part of its ministry, one of the things that is essential in the life of the body, if the preaching of the word is essential to the worship of the church, then the church should be compensating its pastor for doing so. It should be compensating its minister for doing so. Uh, 
1689 Confession, Chapter 26, Paragraph 10, says the following, quote, It is incumbent on the churches to whom pastors minister, not only to give them all due respect, but also to communicate to them of all their good things according to their ability, so that as they may have a comfortable supply without being themselves entangled in secular affairs and may also be capable of exercising hospitality towards others. And this is required by the law of nature and by the express order of our Lord Jesus, who hath ordained that they that preach the gospel should live of the gospel, end quote. The confession writers are arguing what Paul brings forward in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Remember I said earlier that the New Testament has entire chapters on the issue of money, and 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is an excellent example. Paul argues that believers are commanded to fully compensate the elders who preach to them, and they should desire to do so with great generosity because it assures that they themselves will benefit from it. In a sense, you might call this one of those charging of services kind of thing. Okay? Now, in many, in many areas of the world, the idea is, Carrie and I laugh about this quite often, in many churches, it's the, the whole issue of pastoral compensation is basically this, God, you keep the man humble, we'll keep him poor. But that's not a proper approach. That's not a proper approach. Now, if, if, if you have your Bible, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 with me. Very Now, I'm not going to exegete this entire passage. I'm running out of time, so I don't have time to do that. But let me just... Let me just summarize where Paul goes in this chapter. He starts out by addressing a complaint that had come against him, or maybe I could call it a confusion that had come against him. Paul had come to Corinth to preach the gospel, and when he came to that place to preach, he did not accept any monetary compensation from them. He refused their money. And this confused the people of the church of Corinth because it's like, wait a second, everybody else that comes and preaches to us in any sort of way, expects to be paid. Why didn't you accept any compensation? And so Paul is trying to do two things in this chapter. Number one, he's trying to explain why it is he didn't accept any monies, but at the same time why wants to explain why they should, in fact, still compensate those who preach to them. And more specifically, the men among them, their own elders, who are a part of their church, why they should be compensated. So he has this balancing act that he does in this chapter. So he comes and he says in verse 3, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Okay, so you want to talk about this about me? Okay. So he says, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas or Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Okay, so he says, good, see, all right, so what he's implying in his rhetorical questions is, I have the right to expect compensation. The other men did. They brought along what they needed, and they received what they needed, and so don't we have that right as well? Okay, so 
Yes, we didn't take any compensation, but Paul's saying we did have the right to some compensation. But he admits, he admits that he made certain decisions, which, which is what was his right to do. He had the right to expect compensation, but he also had the right to resist it or not accept it. Okay, So he's, he's making this point. So he goes now to say, listen, let me make sure you understand what the reality is. Those who preach the gospel should receive compensation for doing so. So he says, for example, in verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit, who tends a flock without getting some of the milk. Okay, in, in the world, it's just logical, right? It's logical. If you plant a vineyard, you expect to take something from the vineyard, right? So if the preacher preaches a sermon and, and people are changed by it, shouldn't he expect there to be some compensation coming back from it? Verse 8, he says, do I say these things on human authority? Okay, am I making this up as I go along? No. Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So, so Paul makes his first argument as this. The preacher should be compensated because it's a part of the very law itself. God himself said, don't muzzle the ox. Let the ox eat of that which he is treading out. He's working for you. Do not withhold that which he deserves. So he should be able to nibble at the, at the grain that he's treading out as a part of the process of treading that grain out. Just like the preacher should preach the word and those who are hearing it should be provided for. So he makes his first argument that's a part of the law. But then he has a second argument that he adds to it, starting in verse uh, 12. He says, if others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. He lays out a second argument. In verse 13, he says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial altar? Now, notice, he's appealing to what I said earlier about the Levites, right? God didn't give the Levites any land of their own. He, he settled them all around Israel and said, you're going to live in these places. You're not going to have any land of your own except a little spot around each of the cities to graze your, your, your flocks that, that you receive. But even the flocks that you tend are going to be given to you by others. So they were given by God the honor, the honor, and it is an honor, God says, to be living and scattered around the other people and supported by the rest of Israel. So Paul says, do not those who serve in the temple, the priests, eat from the offerings that were brought. And so he says, it's exactly the same thing here. The priests ate the sacrificial animals that were brought by the people in worship. Should not the pastor who preaches, the elder who preaches, also receive from that which is brought as an offering unto the Lord? So here's where Paul then gets very specific. Verse 14. And you'll notice verse 14 and what it says. Notice how Paul writes this. He says, in the same way, in the same way, meaning identical to what happened in the Old Testament Levitical system, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel 
should get their living by the gospel. See how that's written? The Lord commanded it. Who commanded this? Christ Jesus commanded that those of us who are members of the church and sit under the preaching of the word, we are obligated to compensate the elder who does that. And what the confession writers are actually suggesting in the paragraph that I read you before is that we who are members of churches, that the members of the church should should desire to give to their ministers a comfortable supply so that they are not entangled in secular affairs. What does that mean? Here's what it means so that they don't have to hold down a second job in order to preach the gospel to you. They should be paid sufficiently by the members of a church in order to preach the gospel without hindrance. This is the way the elders of my church put it to me when I first came to Grace Fellowship six years ago. They said to me, look, here's the deal. We'll pay your bills. You preach to us. Don't worry about your bills taken care of. Okay, We're going to do that. Our people are going to give and we're going to pay you. And here's what we want from you. Don't worry yourself about money. You go into that office and you wrestle with the text and you pray and you meditate on that scripture and then you come out of there on Sunday morning and you preach a word to us. We'll take care of the rest. You do that. Now, why? Why would they say that? Why, 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 would, why should that be the norm in the church? And I would put it this way to you. The member of a church, the true born-again follower of Jesus Christ, should so desire to hear God speak to him from the Word that he will not allow his pastor to be consumed with anything else other than bringing that word to him. He should be so jealous. He should be so selfish of receiving that word from the minister that he will make sure that pastor doesn't get entangled in anything that would distract him from preaching the word of God to him. the member of the, the, the true follower of Christ should really be saying, I think this is what Paul is arguing here in this chapter. The man, the woman sitting in a church who has come to the church, remember he, he gives only one hour of his life to the minister, right? He gives just one hour. If you preach a one hour sermon, you get one hour. He should say to that pastor, listen, here's the deal. I'm going to give you one hour of my life and I want you to preach the word of God into that hour. And I want you to preach the word of God to me. I want you to bring the fullness of the word of God to me. I don't want you to, to be in, I, I don't want you to tell me stories about this or illustrations about that. I want you to teach me this scripture. I want you to bring the word to bear in my life. And I'm going to make sure that everything else in your life is taken care of so you do that. a jealousy or a selfishness, if you will. And I'm not using that pejoratively. I'm using it in sort of the positive sense, right? A selfishness. I want to hear from God. Preacher, 
preach the word to me. Take all the time you need to study and meditate and pray and wrestle over that text until you can come and speak to me what God is saying from that text. And I, in return, will make sure that you and your wife and your children are taken care of in all of the financial realities of their lives. We'll do that. You preach, we'll pay your bills. That's how it should look. That's what Paul means when he says, a man who preaches the gospel should make his living by the gospel. The Lord commands it because the Lord wants us as ministers to preach the word. Right? That's what he said to Timothy. Preach the word. If I'm spending, if I'm spending 40, 50 hours a week at a, at a secular job and I'm only able to give a few hours a week to prepare to bring sermons to my people, they're being short, they're being, they're being um, well, in America we call it short-sheeted. They're not getting the fullness of it. Now, I, I realize, I realize that in some situations, like in this church here, you, you know, there's not enough coming in from the people to, to pay a pastor full-time. Okay, I get that. That's always reasonable in a church plant. You're not going to have that happen. But that's the goal. That should be the goal. That should be the desire. That should be what the elders are teaching the people. And as the congregation grows and the people become more generous, they get to this point. Say, yes, preacher. I know we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Forgive us for that. But we're going to get there. We're going to get there. That's the goal. Okay. It's important to us that we see ministerial compensation from the perspective of God's grace alone. We've received something from the grace of God. We've received redemption in Christ, which is an unmeasurable thing. So we should desire to be generous in return. And in, in, and in an ironic sense, that generosity flows out of a selfishness of heart. I want the word to come. And so I'm going to be generous so that it comes. That's sort of a paradox, if you will, but it's, it's what the Lord has commanded us. But it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? So the church should raise its money through the people who belong to the Lord, bringing of their tithes and bringing of their offerings into the church as necessary, charging for other services that may be necessary to support the church. But generally speaking, the people of the church bringing their monies to the church to support the elders as they preach to them all to give glory to God. Because in the end, it's all about his glory. And if the minister of the gospel is truly preaching the gospel to the people of the church and they are growing in their sanctification, then God is glorified, even in their tithes and their offerings. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you, our Lord, for reminding us again that all things belong to you and that you are the Lord of glory. And even in this subject of money, we see the hints of your glory peeking through. Because 
in the tithes and offerings of your people as they come into the church. They come with those offerings and with those tithes seeking you, seeking your son, Jesus Christ, to see his face. They come desiring him. And so they come bringing in their hands the gifts that you have filled their lives with. And they set them, they set them down. And they say, Lord, use this to bring us into your presence. And so we see from your word, O oh Lord, that you will be glorified even in this, the issue of money. And we ask you, Father, to help us as the church to consider this well, consider this biblically, consider this within the, the lens of the redemption that we have received in Christ. Father, I pray for this church right here in this place that you will help the people of this church and the churches represented by the pastors in this room this morning that each of these churches will think your thoughts about money to glorify you and not men. And I ask you to do this by the power of your spirit in the name, the powerful and holy name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.